This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this day and we thank You that that You haven't abandoned us to our own ends. You have not given us what we deserve. You've given us what Your mercy and Your grace has ordained. And we are thankful. I pray that as we look at Your Word, as we delve into what Your Son did for us, that we'd be reminded of the glory of the Gospel. I pray for those in this room who may have never heard the Gospel clearly articulated, that today would be the first day that they would understand. And for those of us who assume the nature of the Gospel and what it means, I pray that this day would perhaps be the first day in a long, long time where the Gospel has been clearly seen and rejoiced in. I pray that as we look at how Your Word instructs us and how Your Word uh, shepherds us and gives us clarity as to what we are to do as we live in this world, that we would not be discouraged, but rather be encouraged. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you will, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. We will be studying verses 18 through 25. 1 Peter 2, 18 through 25. Servants, be subject to your own masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. I want to say a few things by way of reminder and review. This text comes on the heels of some of the most amazing verses in all of the Bible. There is an eternal reality that we must remember. There is amazing encouragement. There is so much encouragement available to you immediately right there as you remember, as we think upon what our identity is in the Lord Jesus. If you look back up into verses 9 and 10 in chapter 2, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received Mercy, that is an encouraging reality. And if you are in Christ, those things are true of you and of us. But for the meantime, it doesn't really feel like that. How often do you wake up in the morning like, oh yeah, today I'm a member of a royal eternal priesthood. Let's get after it. Usually if you're like me and you have... uh, adult concerns, 
then immediately what comes into your minds is, is all the things you left undone yesterday and how now they're even more past due or, or in the red, as it were, and you've just got to get after it. Or if you're trying to be good and you wake up early and try to work out, all that comes to your mind is how much you wish you could be sleeping. We're called sojourners and exiles. So on the one hand, we're an eternal royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own possession, His treasured possession, even borrowing from the terminology of the Old Testament. On the other hand, we're sojourners. We're exiles. We've been cast out of the world. The world has rejected us because of what God has done in making us His people. So we, we, are, we have a foot in both realities, if you will. The eternal and timeless and heavenly, and we have our foot in the world. And the world does not like Jesus, so it does not like us. And our part to play, as we looked at last week, is unfortunately, suffering unjustly. We talked about how God is glorified as we patiently endure hardship. And this is emphasized again in this text. And if you thought that it was going to be easy, uh, this truth does not help, as it were. We're trying to look for encouragement and reasons to mitigate the contrast between us and the world and to encourage us, even though we're exiles and sojourners. This truth hangs right there. Our part to play, our script, as it were, is to follow the example of Jesus, to have solidarity with the Lord Jesus in the things that matter most. We need not lose sight, we must not lose sight, of what this entire passage is really about. And we need to put it in the context of the entire letter. In order to have enough motivation, and enough proper motivation to do this difficult thing, that he commands us here to submit ourselves even to unjust rulers, to submit ourselves even to unjust masters. We need a deeper, broader motivation. We need to understand what the Lord is up to and how our willingness, how your willingness to suffer unjustly and even rejoice about it is all part of the point. We need to go back then to chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. I want to read these verses to you to remind us all of what this is all about. We preach verse by verse or section by section through the Bible. So this passage is just the passage we come upon and we go slowly through books of the Bible. So it's been a while since we've been in these verses, verses 3 through 9. But I want to read them to you to remind you of Peter's thesis statement. This is what he says as the heading over all of his letter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. So that superstructure of theology, that truth of the gospel of what God is up to, you have to hang the rest of what comes in First Peter on that superstructure, if you will. So this teaching about subjection or submitting yourself to unjust masters is understood in that context that God is sanctifying us. He is preparing us and he is getting us ready to enter our inheritance. In fact, your entire life as a Christian can be understood in that line. God has called you out of death into life and he's getting ready, getting you ready to enter your inheritance. And all that happens in your life, from between that time when He called you to Himself 
raised you to life to the point where you will enter your inheritance is Him working in your heart to prepare you for an eternal weight of glory and working through you and other people's lives so that they would be able to enter their inheritance as well. Why do we need to remember this? Again, you need real deep motivation in order to obey commands like this. And if it's just obey to obey because God told you so, that's not enough. God is not interested in your white-knuckling, heartless obedience. If it's only that versus sin, then I guess choose that, but that won't sustain you in a life of holiness for very long. You need to know what your loving Heavenly Father is up to. It's to prepare you to enter your inheritance. The motivations of your heart to obey a command like this, to submit even to unjust people, is I want to be near my Lord. I want fellowship with Him. I want nearness to Him. I want more of Him. When that is your perspective, then walking down, even walking down a very difficult path, the same path that Jesus walked, being willing to suffer even unjustly, becomes just a part, just a script to play in the path to get closer to Him and to know Him. We were made to glorify the Lord Jesus, to proclaim His excellencies as we've read. And so doing this in the way we are supposed to do is our highest good. Our greatest joy and privilege is to glorify the Lord Jesus in the way that He has commanded us. So, living your life after the pattern of the life of Jesus is a massive way, and I would argue a neglected way, to proclaim His excellencies as you prepare to enter your inheritance. So, I'm not here to just help you untangle issues of when to submit and when not to submit. When do you need to disobey and when should you obey and, and, and all of that. This is summoning you to live your life like Jesus because that's where He is. And in modeling your life after His example, you come nearer to Him and you gain the one who should be your treasure, the one who will be your inheritance. That's the point. And before we move into the verses themselves, I want to issue you an encouragement. This is Celebration Sunday after all. We're to highlight reasons to celebrate, reasons to rejoice. And here's one right out the gate. The Father is more committed to your joy than you ever could be. And He will even ordain trials for the sake of your joy. Even trials that come into your life, not because you did something wrong, but because you're being righteous. Because that's what's happened to Jesus. And He's going to make it the case. He will prepare you to enter your inheritance, whether we go kicking and screaming along the way or not. He loves you too much to just let you go after what you want. So number one, rejoice We can rejoice because suffering unjustly is grounds for grace. I'll read verses 18 and 19 again. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. This text relates the exhortation specifically to servants. A better literal rendering of this word would be something like household indentured servants or household slaves even or bond servants. This is difficult to deal with quickly for two reasons specifically. One is we don't really have a proper cultural analog for this role. In our culture, there is no such thing as an indentured servant for the most part, Um, especially not in the sense in the first century. The closest thing to us would be something like employer, but that's a really bad fit. So it's difficult to relate this directly to our experience for that reason. And secondly, texts like this were and are used by wicked men and wicked ministers to justify the slave trade in our nation's history. Understand that kidnapping or man-stealing is condemned by the law of Moses. 
Slavery from human trafficking was never okay, okay? So we're just going to say that and move on. This is not what that's talking about. This is talking about the process of indentured servitude. What it was is if you got into a terrible financial situation, you would essentially sell yourself to your debtor for a number of years to pay off your debt. This was essentially the first century form of bankruptcy for you to try and do right and pay it off. The point of these texts, though, as I tried to demonstrate last week and in the introduction this week, is this. How are you going to live honorably as you seek to proclaim the excellencies of our God while you suffer unjustly? The text, in many ways, just assumes that's going to happen. You, as a believer, will suffer unjustly. So how are you going to honor God in it? How are you going to proclaim His excellencies in it? That is the roadmap laid out for us. So with this week, the point is going to the lowest of low estates in the Greco-Roman world. The household slave. And there's a massive encouragement here because even an indentured servant perhaps having to spend the rest of his or her life paying off his or her debt or the debt of his or her parents, someone in that bad of a situation can still be a vital part of the royal priesthood to proclaim the excellencies of our God together. And this is how they do it. By enduring suffering to submit to masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. This is Jesus' answer. This is Peter's answer to how do I please God? How do I honor Him when I'm in a really, really bad situation? The answer is, as we'll see in a minute, conduct yourself like the Lord Jesus did when he was in a really, really bad situation. Now, there are many things we could say to clarify. We should not view this text as a justification for evil. You can look at Ephesians 6, 5 through 9 for a more full treatment of this issue, especially when the believer is the master. And not fatalistically. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that if you can avail yourself of your freedom, then by all means do it. But understand, this is the posture of heart we're supposed to have. And here's the point. The main point of this passage is that grace is available to you. And it is a gracious thing in the eyes of God. This does not help when it says this is a gracious thing. If all that means is something like pretty. That God looks down from heaven and says, oh, how nice that is. Grace in the Bible refers to divine assistance. And what Peter is saying here is that when we are willing to endure suffering, even unjustly, God dispenses grace. He comes to our aid. He helps us. While we entrust ourselves to Him as Jesus did, we receive strength to endure the trial. That's the point. And this is a massive encouragement for us. Typically, the more unjust the suffering, the more frustrated we are and the more we complain. And while in our lives, there are different ways to respond to being treated unjustly, like your HR department, calling the police, using the courts, etc., or prayer, bringing your protest, your petition to the only one who can really ever do anything about it. Yet, even if, or especially if the suffering the endurance of sorrows, is unjust. This is the place and the context where God Himself sees it as gracious. He wants to help the one who is in that situation. This is how He works. And we will see this more as we look at the example of our Lord. So if we wanted to apply this (coughs) 
to the closest cultural analog, this would be to employers. So the way you submit, the way you honor your boss, even if they're a crummy individual, is commending the Lord Jesus. And as you do that, as you try to emulate the behavior of the Lord Jesus, that is a gracious thing in the eyes of God. And you will receive strength and divine assistance as you do so. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. That's a broad principle that applies to any situation in our life, regardless of where you find yourself. So we can rejoice because even if it is our lot to suffer while we do do good and because we do good, however, the Lord himself helps us. This is exactly what the three Hebrew captives were encountering when they confronted Nebuchadnezzar about the issue of the golden image. They were suffering unjustly and thrown into the flames and God helps those who wait on him. And this principle is true if your unjust suffering is even as dramatic as it was for them, or if it's really, really mundane, like with a a boss or a master or manager. Enduring sorrows while being mindful of God with patient hope will bring grace into your life. God's grace will come to your aid, as it were, and help you endure. So that's the first thing. Suffering unjustly is grounds for God to give grace to you. Rejoice. Secondly, no suffering is wasted. Verse 20. What credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing. In the sight of God, he says it is a gracious thing twice to emphasize that even, yes, even in these situations, being willing to entrust yourself to the Lord is a gracious thing. He asks a rhetorical question. What credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? And it's it's rhetorical because the answer is there's no credit. But before we move on, I do want to say that even if we suffer because we have been foolish and disobedient and sinful, there is some benefit there for us. And this is why I say no suffering is wasted, because even if it is not enduring unjust treatment to the glory of God, gaining credit and meriting grace, even in that small setting, yet it does discipline us. So no suffering is wasted. The main point, obviously, is this. When we do good and suffer for it, it is a gracious thing. This is how we prepare to enter our inheritance, brothers and sisters. This is how we proclaim His excellencies. This is how we witness to the world through our behavior. It is not commendable. It is not noteworthy. It is not honorable. At least in the sense that it doesn't really stand out if the only time we're at peace when we're going through hard stuff is because we deserve it. When we do good and 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 and nothing goes our way and yet we maintain a posture of hope in the Lord, that's what stands out to the world. That's what makes them take note and say they have something different. Give us a reason for that hope you have. If you're just waiting for the first chance to insist on your rights and make racket and protest and complain and write to your representative in an angry clamor, then what that says to the world is that our hope is really here. You may do all those things. You can seek justice like the widow and protest, but it must be from faith. And if that's the first thing you do, instead of entrusting yourself to the one who judges justly, then I doubt that there will be much divine assistance there to help you endure the trial. This is what the prophet Isaiah says. It's a well-known passage, but I want you to apply it to this context. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not grow faint. The context is specifically trials and even judgment in Isaiah's context. 
But waiting on the Lord, having that posture of patient endurance, entrusting yourself to Him, that is the one He helps. And here's my pastoral burden for you. I don't want to necessarily tell you what to do in all the intricate and troubling exception situations of submission. But I want to help you trust and obey. To trust and obey the Lord with a posture and a heart and a desire of deference. When we rail against the plan, we forfeit much grace. We forfeit much divine help. Much help that would have been ours. In short, a bad attitude about your suffering unjustly can rob you of help here and reward eternally. That's the point. But we can rejoice that not a moment, not an ounce, not a drop of suffering will be wasted. All of it, even if we are disciplined for our own wrongdoing, is to our benefit. What can man do to me, really? As the song Trust and Obey tells us, not a burden we bear, not a sorrow we share, but our toil he doth richly repay. Not a grief or a loss, not a frown or a cross, but is blessed if we trust and obey. Do you believe it? Do you believe it will happen? Thirdly, we can rejoice because this is our calling. To endure this way, to trust the Lord in the midst of it, is our calling. And I think at this point, it is worth me asking if I'm being successful in trying to show you how much joy and rejoicing is available to you in a text like this. The theme of Celebration Sunday is celebration. How's that working out for you with a text like this? I really don't like breaking from our preaching schedule, even if it falls on certain days. That will be especially clear next Sunday. With a text like this, though, it really calls us on the carpet and asks us if we really believe what we say we believe. If not, if, if the Lord Jesus Himself is not our hope and goal in life, if we're not getting ready to enter our inheritance that He is keeping in heaven for us, then there's no way I can make this text an encouragement for you. It won't be encouraging. Except perhaps as an invitation to come find your all and all in Jesus, the one, the only one who can cause all of your suffering, all of your pain to mean something and to matter. That can be an encouragement. He can cause all your suffering to not be wasted. What else do you have? There is no philosophical system out there that redeems suffering except Christianity. Jesus can do that. A text like this, though, pushes us back even further down into the fundamentals of what the Christian life is. Enduring suffering with a submission, uh, with submissive and humble posture, an honoring posture is not just one thing about Christianity. One might even say this is the Christian life. Why? Because it is our calling. To this you have been called. Why? Why is it our calling? Because this is the story of the life of Jesus. Last week, I mentioned this, that Jesus saved us all because He was willing to entrust Himself to the Father while He suffered unjustly. That is the Gospel. And so, we have been called to walk the same path. But we can, I think, use the cross to get ourselves off the hook in this respect. We speak of the cross this way. He died the death we deserved. You ever heard that said before? That is very true. It is very comforting. But, you know, what about all those Christians who suffered a death in some ways more painful than the death of our Lord? Who suffered longer than Jesus? There are many. 
If what we mean is he suffered, bled, and died so we won't have to, then we misunderstand the gospel. No, this is why unless you have a firm grasp on what the father was doing in giving up his son and what the son was doing in laying down his life for our sins to absorb wrath, to deal with wrath that was against our sins, this will not make any sense to you. This is our calling to follow the example of Jesus. Peter prevents us from wiggling out of this in three ways. uh, Four ways, sorry. To this, he says, to this you have been called. That this is very unambiguous. We talk about calling and there's this vague sense of calling, like maybe I'm called to be a pastor or I'm, I'm called to do this or that and exercise this spiritual gift. In the Bible, it's very, very specific. The antecedent of this, this, here in this text, is specifically suffering unjustly like Jesus. That is your calling. It's not ambiguous at all. It doesn't matter what you feel about it. This is your calling. Secondly, to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. This carries the sense of for your sake which ties it back up to the verses we looked at last week. He said, be subject for the Lord's sake. What kind of life are you really wanting to live for the Lord? He died for your sake. And He summons you to live now for His sake. What kind of life are you really okay living with? Are you only interested in living for His sake? As long as it means that you can still live a comfortable life, preserving all your freedoms and comforts and leaving an undisturbed financial legacy for your children? What if living for His sake means walking the same path and patiently enduring unjust suffering? I wonder... This is what he's asking of us. Number three, he leaves us an example, leaving us an example. Again, not so that we shouldn't have to. This word example here implies the sense of, okay, now it's your turn. And number four, that you might follow in his footsteps. This isn't theoretical following in his footsteps or just just understanding the theology of unjust suffering and what God is up to in it. Like we can have a theoretical love of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Like the idea of love is very appealing to us, but then when when the rubber hits the road and we have to do hard works of love towards other people, that becomes less and less appealing to us. So it's not just knowing the example of Jesus and treasuring his example, but actually living it, following in his footsteps, step by step, following Christ. We can't wiggle out of this. And this is what the prosperity gospel preachers get so, so wrong. They get a lot of things wrong, but this is the central piece here. It is not Jesus suffering so that you would not have to. Rather, it is Christ suffered for you so that you would know how to. That's that's this. I mean, that's just straight from the pages. And my fear is that even though many of us would reject the theology of the prosperity gospel, we yet still use a lot of our time and zeal and energies to make sure prosperity is within reach and possible and attainable for us. How in the world can this cause us to rejoice? This is Celebration Sunday. How is this an encouraging truth? How is this a truth that brings joy? Let me let you in on a secret. Life is hard. And the older you get, the more you realize that no one's excluded. I love hearing testimonies about how the Lord brought people to himself and hearing that the Lord used Ecclesiastes to bring Kate to the Lord is is such a clear indication of this. Even Solomon, able to insulate himself from all the pains and frustrations of the world, able to gain any pleasure he wanted, and yet still there is the hardness of life and the reality of death coming up and the sorrow and the meaninglessness that's there in this world. So so the encouragement of a text like this is that it gives it meaning. 
It's not all just about pain, which pain can be had in varying degrees. It's sorrows. While one endures sorrows, you don't know what others are going through. This world, uh, this word rather from above, this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering justly. That applies in any context. It is a gracious thing. God comes to your aid. God lifts you up. God supplies you with all you need to endure the trial if you entrust yourself to Him who judges justly. Again, all of it goes back to the central question, what are you seeking? What do you really want out of this life? Is it to gain Christ? Not just glorify Him in some general sense or rendering Him glory in some intangible philosophical way, but I want the Lord Jesus, just like Paul says, He's forsaken everything, suffered the laws of all things, that He might gain Christ. Is that your motivation in life? Or if it's not, it's just going to cause friction in your life. And when suffering comes, and it will come, and when life gets harder, and it will get harder, you just won't be on the same page with what God is doing in your life. If that is the core motivation to gain Christ specifically, then uh, to, to, to get ready to enter your inheritance, to use the language of First Peter, then walking the same path of Jesus, even if or when it means suffering unjustly, then that just takes you further down the path of gaining him. What can man do to you? They just merely open up a better path to get to where Jesus is. So we can rejoice because He has called us to it. And if we give ourselves this frame of mind and this commitment, He will help us. When we model our lives and our posture and our heart and our attitudes after the Lord Jesus, in a way, if you want to think about it this way, we remind Him of His Son and his heart is stirred all the more to pour out on us all the assistance and grace we need to endure. Also, we can rejoice because our Savior is perfect. So Peter shifts now to speak exclusively about Jesus and his endurance of trial and unjust suffering until verse 25. We can rejoice because our Savior is perfect. He says he committed no sin. Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. The whole promise of salvation hangs on so many things. You remove one piece of so much of the theology of the gospel and the whole thing comes tumbling down. But this is one of them. And in many ways, it is one of the most foundational. He committed no sin. Our Savior is perfect. He had to be a perfect man, a perfect lamb, a perfect sacrifice. What does that even mean? And here's where I want to explain the gospel to you in the context of a sacrifice or a a perfect substitute. Sacrifice and atonement, these aren't words that the unbelieving world talks about or thinks about a whole lot, unless you're in very pagan cultures. And I would argue most Christians Don't really dig deep in and around what these words mean. So to try to bring clarity very quickly, I'm going to use the terminology of sin debt. Debt is something that we're all familiar with, unfortunately. At least the adults in the room. And when you have a debt, you have to repay that debt. And when you sin, you incur debt, a sin debt. To God. And that sin debt must be repaid. Because God is a just God. He cannot look the other way. All accounts must be balanced. He's not an underhanded accountant when it comes to sin and righteousness. When you sin, you incur a sin debt. And that has to be paid back. And the only way that can be paid back is if you're able to render back to the one who owns that note, if you will, All that is due to them, which you can't. 
It would take you more than eternity in hell suffering the punishment for that sin debt to pay it off. So what are we to do? How are we to deal with this sin debt? Well, someone had to die who had no sin debt of his own. Who could take on himself the sin debt of everyone else and die in their place and suffer the consequences and pay back that sin debt for all who would ever trust in him. That's the gospel. That is why trusting in Jesus is the core binary of whether or not you are in right standing with God. It doesn't matter how much good you have done. It doesn't matter how many times you attend church. It doesn't matter how many verses from the Bible you memorize. Do you trust in Jesus because He's the only one who can pay off your sin debt? And that is the only way you can have right standing before God. That is the essence of the gospel. Embrace it, love it, cherish it, speak it. That in Christ we have forgiveness of our sins because He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in His mouth. Is Peter just being redundant here? No, I think he's connecting this to Isaiah 53. And Isaiah 53 is going to come into this passage at several points. He says this, Isaiah does, 600 years before the death of Jesus. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Further, I think he's using the words no deceit in his mouth to indicate indicate that his words are also life-giving. Peter says this to Jesus, where else are we to go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. So Jesus didn't speak deception. He wasn't trying to lead us astray. He gave us words of life. So we can rejoice because our Savior was and is perfect. The only one who didn't have to die, who didn't have his own sin debt, The only one who had no wrath towards him from the Father is the very one who laid down his life for you to receive forgiveness. And it was out of love for the Father and for you that he did so. We can rejoice also because our Savior is our example. Verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The word example is not found in this text. It's actually found up in verse 21. So why use the heading, our Savior is our example here over verse 23. I usually don't recommend writing in your Bible, partly because I'm a lefty and my handwriting's pretty bad. But this would be a place where it might be helpful to write in the margins somewhere. This is This is Christ, your example. You could replace he, in verse 23, with your name. And you could add a question mark to the side of it. Here's how it would sound. When Joshua was reviled, Joshua did not revile in return. When Joshua suffered, Joshua did not threaten. But Joshua continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Pick an episode of enduring suffering from your life. Pick a time when you had to appeal to authority in your life. Pick a time when you even had to say, we must obey God rather than men. And can that statement be true of you, of your behavior, of your heart, of your attitude? It must, or else you're not following the example of the Lord Jesus. This is a real challenge to have this heart. Because it doesn't take much to unsettle us. Little things can just not go your way and we're not being like Jesus in this verse. I was thinking about this this morning at 1 a.m. I was up late, getting ready for today, go to bed around 12, way too late. And then a dog wakes me up at 1 a.m. And I thought, is this my, 
is this the Lord testing me? This is, this is clearly unjust suffering right now. Like, I, I've paid my dues for the day, and here I am trying to get sleep to serve the Lord, and this dog, for about 25 minutes, kept me awake. It can be just tiny things, and we lose this posture of heart. We've got to be ready. We're out of practice. As I said last week, we have to model ourselves after the spirit and posture of the Lord Jesus. This is also connected to Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like the sheep, a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And this is important. Why does this matter so much? Because trust is a posture of your heart. It's not just a posture of your mind. Do you trust in Him or not? Do you hope in Him? Is He your hope or not? That is the issue of your salvation. Whether or not you trust in Him. Whether or not you hope in Him. It's not just believing that Jesus exists. And that his claims are true in some theoretical or philosophical sense. It's that I trust in him with my life. And then what he says at the end. The, well, we won't spend a ton of time here. If, if, I, if I get going on this, it would not, would not be short. But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Do you believe that that's going to happen or not? One of the pillars of our faith is that the God who is there is a righteous judge. He cannot tolerate sin. And so Jesus had to die to pay for the sins of of those who would believe in Him. And He doesn't just apply this forgiveness willy-nilly. It is only for those who repent and believe in the Gospel. God is just. So if we believe in a God whose very nature is justice, whose very name is the foundation of all that is right and good and true, then you you can, you will trust that He will judge justly. We can entrust ourselves to Him who judges justly. This is the comfort that was available even to Old Testament saints like Job, Asaph, Habakkuk, and even Solomon. The voice, and and, and all of them suffering in some measure unjustly or, or inexplicably. This is the problem with the world. Do you, do you get this? This is what's wrong. This is how we know that something is really, really off. It is not that the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper. It is that the wicked prosper because they are wicked and the righteous suffer because they are righteous. That's the problem. And it shows that something is violently wrong with the world. But you can entrust yourself to Him who judges justly because it's all going to end Christ Jesus will stand on the earth and judge the living and the dead. You eat, this is a massive shift in your heart. If you can just get settled in this, that one day every wrong will be made right. God will bring recompense on the wicked and vindication for the righteous. That will happen. If you can't have that as a big piece of your emotional Universe inside your heart. I, I, it's very hard to conceive of a way to help you. Other than to just convince you that that will happen. The voice of the Lord should echo in our minds with haunting certainty. Vengeance is mine and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time. So rejoice. God is a just God, but this very moment, He is holding off judgment out of His sheer pleasure to show mercy and patience to you. Flee to the only rock of refuge, Jesus Christ, this day. We can also rejoice because Jesus absorbs wrath 
kills, makes alive, and heals. Jesus absorbs wrath. He says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. This is verse 24. It's connected to Isaiah 53. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquities of us all. Sounds just like what Peter is saying here. We can rejoice because there is no more wrath. As we sing, or as we will sing, rather. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Brothers and sisters, I do not mean to communicate to you that if you just believe in the gospel, all of your sorrows and sadnesses will go away. However, even though this text says that we will endure sorrows and trials, but there is so much grace that can be yours, so much encouragement if you can just believe and see the significance of all of your sins having been nailed to the cross. That total violent destruction of the body of Christ on that Roman cross counts, if you trust in Him, as the violent and total destruction of your sin in God's eyes. It's Done. It is crushed in Him. He died so that you would die. Jesus kills. This might sound odd. That we might die to sin. Don't let the wording confuse you here. This is a much stronger statement than it sounds. It's not saying something like, so that each of us would in our own time after we're Christians have the option each day to put to death the deeds of the flesh. That truth is there in the Bible. It's taught elsewhere. That's not what Peter is saying. The tense here communicates this. It conceives of action, not as in progress, not existing as a result, but as a simple fact. You could phrase it this way. He bore our sins in His body on the tree in order to cause us to die to sin. Just as Paul says in Galatians 6.14, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I have been crucified to the world. You are dead to sin if you are in Christ. This is what Romans 6 Recounts as well. We are dead to sin. How can we who died to sin still live in it? He says. Why is this good news that Jesus kills? Jesus' crucifixion kills you with respect to your sin. Because sin itself kills. And after sin has killed you, if you're without Christ, you will stand before your judge with all of that sin guilt And nothing to say for yourself. And nowhere to put that sin guilt. But if you have already died to your sin in the death of Jesus, then when you die, all that can be yours is life. Because you already died with respect to your sins. If you trust in Jesus. This is the Father's plan. Because of His love, He even caused His own justice to work in your favor. There is no question. The only verdict that God can render in your case if you trust in the Lord Jesus is not only innocent, but righteous. You are dead to your sins. It is no longer alive with respect to you at all. So Jesus absorbs wrath. He kills and He makes alive and live to righteousness. We are not just dead to our sins or sin generally and and to just stay in the state of death. No, in His resurrection, we are raised to walk in newness of life, just as we said three times in these baptisms. And this is saying something different than we are declared righteous. That is oh so true. But that's not what Peter is saying here. This is the same thing that Paul speaks of when he is talking about righteousness and sin 
in Romans 5. He says this, But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you have been committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. You are bound through your faith union with Christ, to live righteously. And it's not optional. Understand this. If you are in Christ, a righteous life, a life lived out of faith, yes, failing as we will, false starts as we will have, but your life will be marked by righteousness because you are dead to sin and alive to righteousness. This is what Jesus does in His death. The issue is not motivation. Here, now look, consider Jesus' life and death and, and try to live a righteous life because of what He did for you. That's not what He's saying. That truth is in the Bible. But this is, this is the truth here. You have now been made a slave of righteousness and it will happen. You will live righteously out of faith because of what Jesus has done for you. May not be to the degree that we want, with the clarity that we want, or the ease that we want. Again, sorrows and sufferings, doubts and fears, but it will happen. And lastly, we can rejoice because Jesus is our senior pastor. I had a lot of trouble with this verse, verse 25. But you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Last year when I began preparing for this series, that, that verse stuck out in my, in my mind as one that just didn't fit. I didn't know why Peter was saying it when he did, and I just kept asking and thinking about it. But it really makes sense. Here's how it works. Number one, Peter is not just applying this example of Jesus to household slaves. You notice we kind of left that analogy back in the message probably 20 minutes or so ago. And we've just been talking about the example of Jesus. This verse, verse 25, applies the example of Jesus to the entire community when he says, you were straying like sheep. He's not just narrowing out that only these household slaves were straying like sheep. He's saying all of them used to be in this condition of straying like sheep. And he is continuing to cite Isaiah 53. And he ends it on a positive note. Remember that this is what Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray. And then he ends it now. It's like he's riffing on that theme again and telling us how the story ends. You have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Isaiah 53 doesn't have the, the happy conclusion like that with respect to the sheep. And then number three, It is the motivation. This is where we get motivation. As we began the message in the beginning, the question is, are you willing to walk the path of Jesus to prepare to enter your inheritance? Your inheritance is none other than Christ Himself. I'm not so much interested in heaven as a place, more interested in the Lord of heaven. So He's saying that it actually has taken place. You were straying like sheep. You had, like all these crazy dumb sheep, gone astray after your own way. But now, because of the work of Jesus, you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. If you want to see a parallel text of the same type of structure, exhorting us to submit to leaders, even unjust ones, and then saying, and you used to be unruly as well. Go to Titus 3, 1 through 8. You can look at that in your own time. The grammar suggests phrasing it this way, not just for you were straying like sheep, it carries the sense of you were continually straying like sheep. The comfort of Him being the one who is watching over us is very, very significant. The words He uses here, shepherd, also rendered pastor, and then Overseer or episkopos, or it's the same word used to speak of elders in other places of the Bible. So Peter is saying here before he gets to chapter five, telling us how pastors should function, that Jesus himself is the senior pastor. He is the one overseeing your souls. He is the good shepherd, as he tells us in John chapter 10. We can rejoice and follow his example by, by entrusting ourselves to him who judges justly. Not reviling, not threatening, even when we suffer for doing good. And not just because, and not just because we've been told to, but because we want to stay close to the Good Shepherd.
You want to be close to him? If you're one of his sheep, you want to stay close to your shepherd and be near him and have the comfort and, and assurance that is there for you if you were close to him, then walk the same path he walked. And wherever he leads us, that should be where we want to go. Because that's where he is. And he will bring us to himself. And we will have the fullness of our inheritance in him. It is not only safe to follow his example. It is more than worth it. Because by so doing, we will gain him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word of encouragement that even the worst that the world has to throw at us in suffering and in sorrows is merely our gain as we walk the same path of Jesus. Please strengthen us with these truths. In his name we pray. Amen.